0: Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the fields of psychology and mental health, with your host, Gabe Howard, and featuring Vincent M. Wales.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show. We have a great guest for you this week. Paul Gianfredo from Mental Health America, he's the CEO and president, has joined us to talk about what they're doing for Mental Health Month. Now, Paul, are you there?
2: I am. Thanks for inviting me on.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. And of course, I always have to say hello to Vin as well. He's always here, but he likes to be mentioned. Vin, say hey. Except when I'm not. <laughs> Except when you're not. All right. So, Paul, some of our listeners aren't familiar with Mental Health America. So before we get started, can can you talk a little bit about what Mental Health America is, where they can find you online, and maybe just give a little history?
2: Sure. Mental Health America is the oldest mental health advocacy organization in the United States. Uh, we were formed 108 years ago. And for most of our life, we're the National Association for Mental Health or the National Mental Health Association. Uh, we rebranded, renamed ourselves about 10 years ago as Mental Health America. And we can be found at mentalhealthamerica.net. And 7 million people a year find us that way.
1: Thank you. One of the cooler stories that I have learned along the way is about the Mental Health America Bell. Can, can you tell that story real quick? I, I, I think it's a good one.
2: Yeah, uh, back in the olden days, right, people used to be chained and locked up in state mental hospitals. And in 1953, Mental Health America issued a call for all of those chains and shackles and went to a foundry in Maryland, had them melted down and recast into the Mental Health America Bell of Hope. It has been our symbol since 1953. And we continue to ring it at every one of our annual conferences and conventions. And many of our 200 affiliates around the nation um, also use that bell and ring it uh, as a bell of hope. Very
1: nice. That's incredible. The, the very first time I heard that story, it, it, as somebody living with mental illness, and if I were born in a different era, uh, some of those shackles could have been mine. So it it it, it means a lot. Now, uh, Paul, you're the CEO and president. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you... How you got here?
2: You know, that that story could take the entire time for this podcast, but to to shorten it as much as I can, I had no background or training in mental health at all. When I went to college, I was a philosophy major, took all my courses in philosophy, religion, Latin, Greek, and English, then was elected to the Connecticut State Legislature back in 1978, and as a 25-year-old was assigned mental health uh, to do, mental health policy to do, because nobody else wanted to do it. So I had to learn on the job. And five years later, my son Tim came along. And five years after that, around 1990, uh, to develop signs and symptoms of what would eventually be, be diagnosed as schizophrenia. So I had to learn on the job as a parent of somebody with a serious mental illness as well. And so my employment, my my employment history, my my work evolved over time. I ran nonprofits in Connecticut, in Texas, and in Florida. Um, stopped doing that a few years back, took some time off to write a book called Losing Tim, How Our Health and Education Systems Failed My Son with Schizophrenia, and came to Mental Health America around the time that book was published back in 2014. And I've been doing this job for the last three years. Excellent. Excellent. The big question, what are you guys doing for Mental Health Awareness Month? Well, Mental Health Awareness Month is our annual signature public education Uh, campaign. We started this back in 1949, and it's become so ubiquitous that most people don't even realize that this is a Mental Health America flagship uh, kind of a program that we've got. Each year, we pick a different theme, and the theme helps us create some materials that are relevant particularly to young people. This year's theme is risky business, uh, but really it's an opportunity to talk about some of the earlier warning signs of serious mental illnesses and how young people in particular, and the people who care about them, can manage those symptoms, can, can deal with those signs and symptoms, and can move along pathways to recovery at the earliest possible time. Because what we believe in is prevention for all, early identification and intervention for those at risk, integrated services for those who need them with recovery as always the goal. So while this year our theme is Risky Business, Many of the uh, thousands of organizations that celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month with us pick other themes and focus on particular aspects of mental health and mental illness, and we're happy to promote those as well, just as we've been happy this year to enter into a partnership around real schizophrenia stories with Janssen Pharmaceuticals to be able to promote the actual awareness and opportunities for recovery that exist For people like my son Tim, who've got schizophrenia and who have a lot more hope these days than they may have once had back when they were chained and shackled in our state psychiatric hospitals.
1: That's a lot. You guys do a lot. I want to clarify a real quick point and just make sure that I heard it correctly. Mental Health America
2: started Mental Health Month in May? That's right. We did back in 1949. The first president to proclaim it uh, did so at our request. That was. President Eisenhower back in 1953, same year that the uh, bell was cast, and it has been proclaimed by presidents ever since then, with President Trump continuing the tradition this year in proclaiming it as Mental Health Month again this time around.
1: I was completely unaware of that. I've, I've been celebrating Mental Health Month for, well, since I was diagnosed, and I, I did not realize that it was a Mental Health America thing, so that's that's really yeah. cool. Neither did I. That, that was That was news. That's very neat. So let's talk a little yeah, bit a more.
2: People, yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. And, don't, and And part of that's good because it's become so ubiquitous. And I think that's just in, important to note that so many other organizations, so many other entities have picked up on this. But uh, to give ourselves some credit, uh, about 10,000 organizations, we have only 200 affiliates around the country, but about 10,000 organizations actually use our theme materials this year uh, in promoting Mental Health Awareness Month.
1: That's incredible, very incredible, and and it shows the the power of working together. And I, I'm sure that those organizations, if they were here, they would thank you for the materials because it's it's always difficult to know what to do to make the biggest impact. So it's it's great that Mental Health America is driving that. And of course, one of the things you have is the the real schizophrenia stories. Can you can you talk more about that campaign, how it works? I, I know that there's a donation aspect.
2: Yeah, but let me back up for a second. to... So people can really understand this. I think one of the breakthroughs that we've had in the last couple of years at Mental Health America is when we created what we call our before stage four umbrella. And for people who want to know about that concept, it's really a very simple one that because we have applied a danger to self or other standard in the United States as a matter of public policy, as a trigger to treatment, we've made mental illnesses the only chronic diseases in America that we wait till stage four to treat and then often inappropriately only through incarceration. And what we say at Mental Health America is we have to act before stage four. And I think that's an umbrella that that organizations and entities, for profits, not for profits, anybody who cares about uh, mental health concerns, have been able to adopt and to embrace over the course of the last couple of years. So let's look at something like Real Schizophrenia Stories with Jansen. This is an opportunity for people to go to this website, realschizophreniastories.com, and to actually look at a, a couple of very compelling narratives from people who have got schizophrenia who are really working in recovery from schizophrenia. You know, this isn't a death sentence. You know, my son has had schizophrenia for 25 years now, and people with schizophrenia continue to be able to make valuable contributions Uh, to our society, valuable contributions to other people. And Real Schizophrenia Stories helps people understand that and see that. And one of the things that Jansen's done with us is to give us a donation, basically, uh, for everybody who goes and looks at some of these stories. I want people to look at the stories because they're stories of hope. But, of course, Jansen graciously uh, has said uh, you should want people to look at this because they're also an opportunity for us to make contributions and donations to Mental Health America, to promote mental health awareness, to promote our before stage four messaging, and to promote hope among people with schizophrenia and other serious mental illnesses, and especially among the people who love and care for them. Many people are just not aware of these opportunities that are there, and these opportunities for hope, the kind of breakthroughs that we're seeing in science, the kind of breakthroughs we're seeing in our recognition and understanding of schizophrenia and what schizophrenia and and psychosis in general look like at the earliest stages. Let me add just something to that, that we have an online screening program. You can find it on our website at mentalhealthamerica.net, or people can go directly to it at mhascreening.org. And over the course of the last three years, about two and a quarter million people have gone to our website and taken a screen. And what we've been learning from the people who go to our website and take a screen is this, that fully two-thirds or more of those people screen as positive or moderate to severe for the condition for which they screen. They might screen for depression, for bipolar, for PTSD, for psychosis, for any number of other conditions. So two-thirds screen as positive or moderate to severe. Two-thirds of those people say they have never been diagnosed with a mental health concern or condition as of yet. So this has become wow. the largest help-seeking population anywhere in the United States. And what it's giving us is insights into what some of the earliest stages of schizophrenia feel like for individuals. And coupled with the science that is developing around the brain, when you can put that brain science together with what people are using, the words people are using to describe the symptoms and, that they have and the feelings that they have, I think we have there the opportunity really to to have significant breakthroughs in the next several years, really, the next several months, next several years, to really go all in on earlier identification, earlier intervention, and this is going to mean better pathways to recovery just as it has with every other chronic disease in America, like cancer, like heart disease like diabetes and other things the earlier you recognize and identify them, the better off you are we shouldn't have to wait 10 years like we did with my son before we get an accurate diagnosis and a great treatment now we have an opportunity to get accurate diagnosis earlier and we have many many more treatments such as the treatments that are that are outlined they're just an example of the treatments that are available to people in the real schizophrenia stories
1: thank you paul i i i appreciate that it, this is My next question is, or my next comment, rather, is in no way scientific, but when two-thirds of the people are showing that they have moderate, severe, or something that they're self-testing for, it it kind of shows that they have an inkling that they might have this, and it's coming out that they, in fact, do. So the education must be improving, because, you know, again, 50 years ago, I I don't think anybody would have even taken the test for mental illness, because that was something that happened to other people, and, and here we are... Like you said, two-thirds are, well, essentially they're, they're proving to be accurate in their, their assessment, what they were looking for. Does that ring true for you? How do you see that from from your perspective?
2: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And, and when you talk about the difference between 50 years ago and today, what makes it even more true is that three-quarters of the people who take our mental health screens are under the age of 25. Now, that makes sense if you think about the fact that half of mental illnesses emerge by the age of 14 and three-quarters emerged by the age of 25, that three-quarters of our screeners will also be under the age of 25. No, there's no question. There's better recognition. There's no question that young people are understanding that they're feeling different from the way their peers feel, that the way their siblings feel, that the way they their, their parents tell them they ought to feel, and that they want to do something about it. People are willing, more today than ever, especially young people, to seek out sources of information, help and support, especially online and in, in social me- through social media. And that's one of the reasons why you know our social media following has increased in the last three years from 100,000 to about 350,000 people right now. And part of that reason is, I think, because people want to get more information. And so the more we can deliver to them uh, through electronic media, I think the, the better off we're going to be. And these aren't just resources that, you know, old people like me can give to young people like my son. These are peer-to-peer resources that people are looking for, too. And, and that's part of what I think they get from the real schizophrenia stories, the opportunity. I mean, one of the people works as a peer support specialist, the opportunity to be able to move on pathways to recovery as a result of working with people who have experienced the same life experiences that they have. And can show them a pathway forward. These are great things that, that you're sharing with us, Paul. As you know, our, our system of mental health delivery in nationwide is kind of a wreck.
1: That's what an are, understatement. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I'm trying to be nice about it. What are one or two of the biggest things do you think that we can and should fix first? Well, we've got to stop using jails and prisons as 21st century, you know, state mental health hospitals. I mean, my generation of policymakers, you know, we closed those and then we just reopened them as jails and prisons. And that's number one. That's for adults. Number two is we've got to focus more on kids. We've got to be able to integrate what's going on in classrooms and kids with what's going on outside of the classrooms and kids' lives. Because if we don't intervene when kids are young, and, and are afraid, put our heads in the sand and are afraid to do so, then we're going to keep moving children along pathways to incarceration, hospitalization, and homelessness, which is pathway, the pathway that my son was put on. So I would focus on those two things. Let's get people out of jails who shouldn't be there, nonviolent offenders or serious mental illnesses who constitute the majority of people in our jails and prisons. It's number one. And number two, let's stop putting kids along pathways to jails prisons homelessness and hospitalization by intervening better uh, when the symptoms are first emerging wonderful thank you.
1: You, you, you you stole the cornerstone of my advocacy or or I stole it from mental health America depending on how you look at it I've when I was diagnosed I, I knew nothing I, I was diagnosed suddenly like like most people in in a crisis point I was committed to a psychiatric hospital uh, for a few days because of suicidal thoughts and delusions and It really was very, very scary because I had zero information. And when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, I didn't know anybody living well with bipolar disorder. So I just assumed that nobody was, and it really felt very, very, very hopeless. So when I got well, the big thing that I decided to do was just be as loud as possible and educate as many people as possible. Not because I wanted people to be diagnosed with mental illness, but because if anybody was they wouldn't think that they couldn't get better. They would think, oh, this is terrible, but I know this really loud red-haired guy and he seems to be doing okay. And that would provide them, you know, motivation and hope to get better. And then, you know, finally, as you put it, if somebody was suspecting, they would go and get a health screen or they talk to their parents or they talk to a general practitioner and they wouldn't have to wait until they ended up in a psychiatric ward before they were diagnosed. They could get treatment as, as you so eloquently put it before stage four. So I, I can't agree with this more. This is fantastic.
2: Well, your experience is exactly the way it currently should be. People learning from peers, people who have gone through it and come out the other end. And of course, we'd say that probably the first time you noticed that there was something going on was not when you had that crisis event. It was probably years earlier. And and if only, you know, there'd been the tools available, the the opportunity for people to recognize what was going on. I think, you know, we could argue that you would have moved down your pathway to recovery a whole lot sooner.
1: That is absolutely you know, hindsight is always 2020. 20. Me and my family, we spend a lot of time Monday morning quarterbacking this that if we had only known and then fill in the blank from there, because the signs were very, very obvious. So uh, I appreciate what you're doing. So Paul, thank you so much for being on our show. Believe it or not, 20 minutes have just zoomed by that quickly. So we really appreciate it. Do you have any parting words for us?
2: I just think that people ought to, as I say, always have hope. Um, You know, there's certain hashtags that we use at Mental Health America before stage four is one of them. A second one is fight in the open because it's so critical that we share our stories, you know, share our narratives, you know, have these real schizophrenia stories and other stories as well. And then the third And I think most critical and important hashtag for anybody who's experiencing a mental health concern is the hashtag always hope because there is always hope.
1: Well, thank you so much, Paul. We appreciate you being on the show for everybody else. If you are an iTunes subscriber, please like us, share us, tell all of your friends and, you know, hang out with us as much as possible. Vin and I are fun. So for Psych Central, we will see you all next week. Thanks, everyone.
0: PsychCentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. PsychCentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is a professional speaker, award-winning writer, and mental health advocate. You can find more information on Gabe and his work at GabeHoward.com. Vincent M. Wales is an award-winning speculative fiction novelist and suicide prevention crisis counselor. You can find more information on Vincent at vincentmwales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email psychcentral.com.